It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast, the nature and countryside podcast from BBC Country Farm magazine. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the host of the podcast. So this is season nine, our homage to spring in Britain as we attempt to visit 12 very different habitats to record the wild residents and meet some equally worthy human inhabitants. In this episode nine, naturalist Megan Shearsby travels east to explore one of the UK's oldest nature reserves, Wiccan Fen in Cambridgeshire. Wiccan Fen has been owned by the National Trust since 1899, and it represents an incredibly rare habitat in Britain, a unique wetland haven for wild creatures. In this first of two podcasts set on the Fen, Megan meets with Professor Nick Davis, who is one of Britain's foremost authorities on the Fen's most infamous inhabitant, the cuckoo. Nick shares some of his incredible insights into the behaviour of this well-known but sadly declining bird. Now, I thought I knew about cuckoos, but some of the details Nick and Megan discuss are really quite eye-opening and completely fascinating. Plus, along the way, they meet many more of the Fen's wild inhabitants. And if you like our podcast, please do leave a like and a review on whichever podcast provider you use, or send me an email at editor at countryfile.com. But for now, I leave you in the hands of Megan, Nick, and the cuckoos of Wiccan Fen. So I'm standing in the middle of Wiccan Fen with one of the top ornithologists in the country, Professor Nick Davis from Cambridge University. So Nick, tell me a little bit about this habitat that we're in and... I mean, are we likely to hear any cuckoos today? We might do. Uh, we're on Wiccan Sedgefen, and we're at the start of the Wiccan Lode. Um, and this stretch I've been walking since 1985. It's one of the best places for cuckoos because their favourite host, the reed warblers, nest along the reeds along the edge of the Lode here. And there's a nice stretch of bushes, uh, buckthorn and willows, and that's where the cuckoos hide away watching the reed warblers so they can time their laying very carefully and it's just as you can see it's just the most beautiful place even on a gray windy day like this there's there's a magic in the air and if we come along a bit i will show you a reed warbler's nest they're just beginning to lay their eggs now now i'm very excited and when i arranged to meet up with nick i was secretly hoping that he would bring his nest finding stick with him which I've seen him use before and show me a nest um, now last time I think you showed me one with a cuckoo egg in it but will they have laid their eggs by now or is it a bit too early still? It's, it's a very late season just because we've had this cold northerly wind for a month now and the reed warblers are a little bit later than normal um, so I haven't found any cuckoo's eggs yet. The reed warblers are just beginning to lay and most of them haven't completed their clutches yet, so there's still plenty of time. I'm hoping for a cuckoo egg in, in a few days' time. There are certainly cuckoos defending territories on the fen 
So they're waiting and all ready to go. So I'll show you a nest here. I've marked this stretch with these little orange tags. Yes, I can see them every sticking minutes, out. Or so. And the first one is at 135. So if we just go along to this spot with a little luck, we'll well, find the nest. I'm glad I wore my wellies today. I was yes, it's thinking about wearing my hiking boots, but it is very damp out on the fen. I actually love walking on the sedge fen here because the ground seems to sway beneath your feet. Of course, this peat's all resting on water deep down. And it's, it's lovely, so let's just stop here. Yes, it's, it's threatening rain. It's very grey. I did see a hint of blue sky earlier, so it could go either way. Gone too far. Oh, this is a reed warbler singing now. So it's a lovely jaunty song. I always think nightingales are poets. They they pause between phrases. The reed warbler sings in prose. He just has this lovely jaunting rattling song. Here he goes. And you can hear the neighbours just 20 metres away. So the males defend stretches of just about 20 metres. So I was going to ask, it's just the males that are singing here, it's aren't they? only the males that sing, and it's extraordinary. We've colouring birds for individual recognition. They spend the winter in West Africa. They have this incredible spring migration involving a 50-hour non-stop flight over the Sahara. Gosh. And they come back to exactly the same territory on Wiccan Fen year after year. So the oldest male we've had had six successive seasons in exactly the same little 20 metre stretch. And most of them only have one or two summers and they're short, they're relatively short lived. Annual survival is about 60%. But it's, I love the song, it's, it's really beautiful. There's some swift screaming oh, yes, overhead now. Oh yes, there they are, I can see two just going over the trees next to us. Ah, oh, they are stunning birds. Yes, and today I, we've had hawthorn blossom at its best and screaming swift. So even on a grey day like this, it's brilliant. Oh, I can hear another one. Yeah. Well, we have to go back. We've come a bit too far. Oh, so yes. I've, I've, I've got a long willow stick here. This was cut for me by Ralph Sargent, who was a, a warden on the Fen for many years. So I still like to carry this in memory of him. He passed away a few years ago. And if I just stretch this uh, stick out into the reeds and then part Gosh. the stems, and you can see the reed warbler's nest. How perfect is that? Isn't it lovely? It's about see if I can yeah. get a photo to share yeah. on the, the page. Not a very good photo, I'm afraid, it's just on my phone. So it's about the size of a big tennis ball, I suppose, and it's a beautiful cup anchored, uh, this one, I think, four or five reed stems, and it's built entirely by the female out of old strips of reed heads, and she anchors it to the stems using spider silk. Oh, wow. And one of the most lovely sights in the spring is to see females up at the top of the reed uh, picking what looks like nothing, but it's actually thin strands of spider silk with which to anchor her nest to the reeds. And it's, I can't believe how small it is, bearing in mind yeah. 
what the average clutch size is about four is that right it's four so let me just let's just pop in and we can have a look oh my gosh we're gonna get a bit closer yeah. so i'm just going to tilt the reeds and how many oh eggs my. can you see there i can see two but i'm a bit shorter so i can't quite see three. oh there yes are, could just make out the third one so oh they're so small they tiny so she laid her third egg this morning and as you say, the usual clutch size is four, so she'll lay one more egg tomorrow morning, and then that's it. And, and then she'll, once she's laid the fourth one, she'll start sitting in them. She'll so start sitting, on sitting. Them. So I think what we'll do is we'll back away so we don't yeah. disturb her. So when the cuckoo is calling, that's just the male that's calling, isn't it? So only the male goes cuckoo, and he defends the territory. Um, they usually arrive about the 20th of April, and that hasn't changed for the last 150 years. We know that from old records. Even this year? Uh, this year, yes, the first one was about the 20th, so they came bang on time. And you can recognise individual males by their distinctive calls. So there are at least four males on the fan at the moment, and two of them are very distinctive. One, most of them go cuckoo, as you know. Um, there's one goes cookbook, <laughs> and then we've got a cook cough who must be in sympathy with Covid, I guess. <laughs> but they're easily recognisable by these slightly strange calls. Um, and then the females are much more secretive. So male and female cuckoos look alike. They're about the size of a collared dove and they're grey on the back with barring underneath. And the females have a little bit of brown on the chest and they're much more secretive. And they have this very strange bubbling cry. Mm. And I can't imitate it, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's like a chuckle, if mm. you like. Now, in the old days, when we started studying cuckoos here, we had at least 10 females on the fen, and we could recognise them by their distinctive egg patterns, almost like signatures. Um, and numbers of cuckoos sadly declined, so we only have about three females on the fen. So four males now. and three females? Something like that. Ooh, the okay. females are harder to, harder to um, count. Yeah. Now, does you say the, the male sets up a territory and... Does he mate with just one female within his territory or does he, if another female comes along, will he mate with her as well? So we don't know that from our studies, but uh, other studies have been done and they've used DNA fingerprinting to assign paternity and maternity. And in many cases, a male will have just one female, so it's a monogamous pair, and he'll father all that female's chicks through the season. And the record is actually 25 eggs in a Gosh. season. Um, so if you're a cheat like the cuckoo and you foist all parental wow. parent to somebody else, you're free to lay far more eggs than yes. normal parental species. That's amazing. I, that was going to be one of my questions, how many yes, that's eggs? The record. 25? But, but the aver average is probably something like 8 to 10. Still good going. Yes, it's amazing. So Compared to only, other birds, yeah. They only lay one egg in each reed warbler's nest. And I should say that this the... the Cuckoos come in different strains. They, they have different egg colours which suit different hosts. And up in the moors in northern England, the cuckoo strain there goes for meadow pipits and they lay a brown egg like the pipits. Here in the Fens, we have a reed warbler specialist race of cuckoos and they lay green eggs which match the reed warbler's green eggs. I read somewhere that cuckoo eggs have been found in over 50 different species of other birds' nests yes, in the UK. That, that's right. And most of those will just be very occasional uh, hosts. Uh, the, the main hosts in Britain are the meadow pipit in moorland and the reed warbler in fenland. And then they also go for dunnocks in woodland and farmland. 
and Robinson wrens are also quite common hosts. So mm. those are the main ones. I was going to say, because I saw in, I think it was in Latvia, I saw um, Robin fe- feeding yes. a very large juvenile <laughs> cuckoo, yes, yes. which was extraordinary because I hadn't realised that robins yes. could be hosts yes, for yes, cuckoos. Yes, no, they're regularly hosts on the continent and, and here too, yes. And how do the cuckoos know where to lay their eggs? You say there's different colours for different species. Yes. So how do they know okay. where to lay their eggs? Now, this is, I expect, a little bit complicated. OK, so that's a good question. So these different strains of cuckoos are very interesting. They're, they're, they're genetically different. So they're almost like subspecies of cuckoos. And each subspecies or each race is genetically programmed to lay a particular egg type green on the fen here for example so then your question is how does a young cuckoo know what host race it is Mm, particularly it's never met its parents yes so we don't know for sure but the the most likely thing is that they learn what host to go for by their experience as a chick so they probably imprint on reed warblers and learn their songs and the characteristics and the habitat and think, well, that's the host I'm going to go for when I grow up and become a parasite myself. And so you have a genetic inheritance of egg type, but learning of hosts. Mm. And the way to test this, obviously, would be to take a young cuckoo and to put it in a different host's nest to see if you could then trick it to learn that new host and see if it then targeted that new species when it became adult. And that that we've not managed to do that. It's too complicated. That does sound... Yeah. Quite a difficult experiment to undertake. And, and d- difficult to track the cuckoos because they don't breed until they're two or three mm. and they go to Africa and they disperse away from their natal habitat. So young cuckoos born on the fen disperse to other fen than nearby. They don't come back to Wiccan itself. Um, so it would be very difficult to do that experiment. It would be quite a feat if someone managed it and it would be fascinating to see what they found out. It would. If, if it was possible. But... It would, yes. So... They imprint on these, in this case, reed warblers. How do they then know the cuckoo song and the the females chuckle? Because they've again not heard that from no. their parents. So that's a very that's a very good question too. Well, it's assumed that's genetically encoded. Lots of birds with complicated songs have an inbuilt component and then they learn all the twiddles and cheeps in detail by listening to their parents and to neighbours. So the full repertoire involves learning, although the basic sound would be there genetically. For cuckoos, which have a very simple call, cuckoo, and the female a very simple bubble call, it's probably entirely unlearned, it's entirely genetically programmed. And could, and because they're not hearing their parents, that could explain why... As you said earlier, you sometimes get ones which are slightly different. It's still the basic song or call, just a little bit different. It, it could be their brains uh, are a bit odd. Or it, <laughs> it, it could be that they've got problems with their vocal apparatus. Um, it could be either of those. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So you wander on a bit. Let's wander on. We might, with a bit of luck, we might hear a cuckoo. Though it's so windy. For them. Yeah, I was hoping we might see some dragonflies or oh, bees, no. but oh, oh. they're probably all tucked away safely somewhere. I can hear a chiff-chaff in the distance.
So female cuckoos are so secretive um, that we could easily have walked past one now mm. and we would have missed it. And they just sit very, very still. Even though they're quite large birds. Yes, yes. Oh, Swift's very low Swift. just then. Was it the Times or the Telegraph used to print when the first cuckoo was heard in the UK? They did, absolutely. Uh, they've stopped doing that now. Um, Such a shame. And of course people made mistakes and sometimes it mm. was the, the milkman or the, or the postman because it's very easy to mimic the sound. Yeah. I can do it now just by cupping my hands. So lots of people are tricked into thinking the cuckoo's arrived and actually um, it's a human sound. Or even a collared dove, which goes coo coo coo. Yes. That can sometimes be mistaken for a cuckoo. Well, we're getting a bit closer to the chiftef now, so hopefully the recorder will start picking it up. I heard my first chiftef quite early this year, in February, when we had that warm spell. Yes, yes. And then I didn't hear one again for ages. It got so cold again. Yes. Nice, we've got 10 species of warblers on the fan. There's the chiffchaff just gone. Ah, yes. The chiffchaff's the first one to arrive, and the last one's the garden warbler. I mean, Wiccan Fen has got an astonishing diversity of birds, hasn't it? It's lovely, it's really, it's really great, yes. Oh, is that yellow flag iris just coming into bloom over there? It is, actually. That's the first I've seen, not spotted. Nice, just burst of yellow yeah. amongst the green. Now, I wanted to dig a bit into cuckoos. Right. Because we celebrate their arrival, what with years of printing their arrival in newspapers and celebrating their return but um they're actually well there's so many layers of deceit and yes. murder yes. involved yes. with such a celebrated bird yes yes it's um i don't know where to start really should we well that that's start with the female perhaps yes so that that's why i got interested in cuckoos uh 30 plus years ago um, of course, I admire them as our harbinger of spring and look forward to their arrival, but it's their trickery that intrigued me. And together with colleagues, we wanted to know how on earth do they get away with it? Um, surely the host should fight back. And yet when you see a little reed warbler or a robin feeding this enormous cuckoo chick, you think, my goodness, why are they being so stupid? Mm. And do they have any defences at all? And so we decided the best way to test this was by some simple experiments which we've done here on the Fen, where we played the part of the cuckoos ourselves and we put model cuckoo eggs into reed warblers' nests to see what they would do. And what we found was that if we gave them a model cuckoo egg of a different colour than their own, they'd very quickly throw it out mm. of the nest. But if we painted our model eggs to look like the reed warblers' eggs, namely green and spotted, then the reed warblers would be tricked into accepting that model egg as if it was one of their own. And that very simple experiment shows why the cuckoos had to evolve a good match. That, that good match to the reed warblers' eggs is essential uh, to fool the reed warblers. So it's a combination of colour, 
size yes. and the speckling. Yes, all those are important. And as you say, the size is important too. So the cuckoo's a big bird, about the size of a dove, and the reed warbler's tiny, it's smaller than a sparrow. Uh, so the cuckoo lays a very unusually small egg for its body size, and that size is essential for fooling the hosts. Because if you make a big egg, the size that you'd expect from a cuckoo-sized bird, the reed warblers chuck that out. They're straight away. Straight away, they refuse to incubate it. But how... Because it's not just a case of the laying the right egg and hoping for the best. There's, no. there's even more layers to this, aren't there's, there? There's more. So in addition to that, speed and timing are really important. So um, the timing is important because the cuckoo has to lay her egg at the same time the reed warbler's laying her clutch. So reed warblers lay a clutch of four eggs, one a day. So she's got a window of four days in which to lay her egg. If she lays too early before there are any eggs in the nest, reed warblers always throw that egg out. So they, they've got this rule, any egg appearing in the nest before I begin to lay can't possibly be mine, chuck it out. That's pretty wise. But once they start laying, then provided the match is good, they'll accept the egg. But on the other hand, although the cuckoo can't be too early, she can't be too late either, because if she's too late, then her egg won't hatch out in time. And the reason it's important for her egg to hatch out in time, <laughs> usually before the reed warbler's eggs hatch themselves, is because the young cuckoo, just a few hours old and still naked and blind, balances each of the reed warbler's eggs on its back one by one and shuffles up to the edge of the nest and with a little flick of its wing stumps, chucks the egg overboard and it does that with each host egg until it's cleared the nest and then it commands all the food that the reed warbler parents bring. I just can't get my head around that you know just hatched and already committing murder. It, it is extraordinary <laughs> isn't it? It's, it's really amazing. So, the, so the, the, the female cuckoo's got to get her timing right and the other thing which is very interesting she's, she's got to be in and out before the reed warblers notice her. So what the female cuckoo does is, you can imagine her sitting up in one of these uh, buckthorn or willow trees here, and she usually lays her egg in the afternoon between three and five o'clock, and having targeted a suitable host nest for today's parasitism, she'll glide down to the reed warbler nest, she picks out one reed warbler egg and lays her own in its place, and then she's off. And that's all done within 10 seconds. Gosh. It's just astonishing speed. And our experiments show that that speed and secrecy are important too, because if you show the reed warblers a stuffed cuckoo at their nest, a taxidermic mount, uh, to simulate a female that was a bit slow, <laughs> then the reed warblers not only mob that cuckoo, of course, but then they're alerted to closer attention uh, to their clutch, and they're more likely to reject the cuckoo's egg. So she's got to be in and out, quickly to avoid alerting suspicion. Wow. So the female cuckoo, she's a fantastic bird watcher. You can imagine her staking out her territory and she might need up to 25 reed warblers nests to lay uh, in during the summer. And she's got to be a brilliant bird watcher to get all these nests lined up in a, in a suitable sequence in order to parasitize those nests. Very patient as well. Very Just patient. Just sit there <laughs> watching. Yes, absolutely. So she's the, probably the best bird watcher I know. I think. Yes, definitely. Now, I think I heard you mention somewhere before that it's not the end of, not the end of the world, but it's not game over if 
a reed warble has laid all her eggs. The female cuckoo does have a trick up her sleeve. She has, she, exactly, well done. So what happens is if the female cuckoo comes across a nest she's missed, where incubation is already underway and so it's too late to parasitise that nest, the female cuckoo will swallow the whole clutch and that then forces those reed warblers to start again, build a replacement nest and so it makes available a new opportunity for that cuckoo to parasitise them. And by farming nests systematically within her territory in this way, she can make available opportunities for parasitism right through the summer, from middle of May right through to the beginning of July. That is... So she's a manipulator as well as a cheat, <laughs> yes. That is fan not fantastic for yeah. the reed warblers, but yeah. Yeah. fantastic evolution. Yes, it is wonderful, absolutely wonderful. So the chick has hatched. Yes. And it's thrown all the other eggs out of the nest. Yes in this murderous spree. But it's going to grow into quite a big chick. Yes. And it's quite a small nest, in fact. Yeah. But how does the reed warbler and the dunnock and the meadow pipit, how does the adult, A, not realise yes. that it's not one of its own yes. species, and B, manage to collect enough food for this yeah. gigantic chick? <laughs> So those are really good questions. So our, ex our experiments show the reed warblers are very fussy at the egg stage. So they demand a, a good matching egg in, in order to accept it as, as one of their own. And then the strangest thing is this cuckoo chick hatches out and it doesn't look like a reed warbler chick. It's got pink skin and it's got a very bright orange gape, quite different from the reed warbler's own chicks, which have got yellow gapes. And you might think, well, why doesn't the reed warbler reject this alien chick? And it's strange, having gone all to this uh, fussiness at the egg stage, why it doesn't reject the odd chick. And we don't know the answer to that, but the cuckoo does have a very good trick up its sleeve to make sure it gets enough food. Now this is some experiments that Becky Kilner and David Noble and I did. And our first idea was <coughs> the reason the reed warblers love the cuckoo so much is, is it's just big. So maybe a big chick is a very powerful stimulus uh, to attract parental care because after all the biggest of your own chicks is the one most likely to survive so a rule feed and prefer a big chick would make very good evolutionary sense. So what we did is we gave the reed warblers um, a single blackbird chick to feed. Now you might think that's a bit of a balmy thing to do but it turns out a blackbird chick is about the same size as a cuckoo so if it's just size that's a stimulus prediction is they should feed a blackbird chick just as much as a cuckoo chick. So what we did is we took a, a brood of reed warbler chicks out of the nest. Now don't worry, we looked after them, kept them nice and warm and well fed on mints during this brief experiment. And we replaced them with a single blackbird chick. And the reed warblers would feed the blackbird, but they didn't bring it as, as much food as they would to a cuckoo of the same mass. So just being big isn't enough. And then we realised, of course, that the reed warblers not only look at their chicks, but they listen to them too. And it turns out that the cuckoo chick has got a very rapid begging call. It's a high-pitched see, And it sounds like lots of chicks. And we thought, oh, maybe that's it. Maybe it's vocal trickery of sounding like lots of hungry young that spurs the reed warblers on. So now we repeated the blackbird experiment, but this time we gave it a helping sound in the form of a little loudspeaker next to the nest. <laughs> I'm just every, trying to picture that. <laughs> well, every time the reed warblers came to feed the blackbird chick, we broadcast cuckoo banging calls through the loudspeaker. And the reed warblers now double their rate 
of feeding the blackbird and to all intents and purposes treated it just as if it was a cuckoo. So it's this vocal trickery of sounding like lots of hungry chicks that gears the reed warblers into feeding the cuckoo just as if it was a brood of their own. That's very clever. So it's wonderful. So the poor old reed warblers, they get brainwashed by visual mimicry at the egg stage and then get brainwashed by vocal trickery of the young cuckoo chick. They really don't stand a chance, no. do they? No, it's, it's, so the, the, the cuckoo's wonderful. It, it, it's one of nature's greatest cheats, I think. Definitely. There's still some weird things going on. You might think, well, as the cuckoo grows and gets to maybe seven times the size of the reed warbler, surely then they should realise that this could not possibly be one of their <laughs> own chicks. But they don't. It just seems to be a blind spot, and they carry on feeding the cuckoo, even as it grows to the size of an adult. Um, and that's for a period of about three weeks after it leaves the nest. And then this cuckoo chick, um, by the time the latest ones hatch on the fen and are reared to independence, their parents are probably already back in mm. Africa. Because the parents leave at the beginning of July once there are no new nests to parasitise, there's no point for them to stay. And so it's amazing to think of September, a young cuckoo chick here on the fen, with its parents perhaps already crossing the Sahara and going back to Africa. And here it is on a different continent, and it flies all the way to Africa by instinct, um, it's all hardwired, and then it will later come back and be a parasite, parasite itself, and so the cycle carries on. It's fantastic. Now the cookies actually go by t at least two different routes. They do, don't they? Yes, they do. Depending on where they are hatched in the UK. Yes. So this is work done by uh, Chris Hewson and Phil Atkinson at the British Trust for Ornithology, and they've been satellite tagging cuckoos. And they show that most of the cuckoos uh, in the fens here take a westerly route to Africa. They go through Spain and they put on fat there and then they cross the Sahara, go down to Western Africa and then down to the Congo rainforest where they're going to spend most of the winter. So you can imagine them spending their winter with lowland gorillas <laughs> in, the, in the rainforests of, 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 of the Congo. Cuckoos up in Scotland uh, tend to take a different route. They tend to go southeast through Italy and they fatten up there in the Po Valley and then they cross the Sahara via a more easterly route. And the fates of the cuckoos on these two routes seems to be different. So the BTO satellite tagging shows that the, the Fenland cuckoos which go on the southwesterly route have a rough time and only about half or 60% of them make it to the winter quarters. Whereas most of the Scottish cuckoos going across the southeasterly route make it successfully to Africa. And there may be different uh, opportunities for feeding and putting on fat in different parts of Europe. And that marries very nicely with the different fates of the cuckoos breeding in the UK at the moment. With the, across lowland Britain, we've lost about half our cuckoos in the last 30 years. Whereas the Scottish numbers are keeping up and, if anything, maybe even a slight increase. Okay, so... Yeah, it's, when you think about conserving cuckoos, you've got to think about what they're doing outside of the UK as well. Yes, absolutely. So we could have a wonderful conservation here going on here in the fens, but you need conservation uh, of habitats uh, for them during migration, for them to fatten up, and in winter quarters too. And that's true for a lot of our birds. It, absolutely, yes. It's actually... This reed warbler, let's listen to it. I did, I did wonder as we were talking, I was like, oh, is that a reed warbler again? So this guy hasn't got a mate, um, so it's early in the season. He's probably only arrived in the last few days. 
and he just sits and sings more or less non-stop. So let's just listen to him. That's what I mean about him singing in prose. He never yeah. seems to stop. They take many breaths, which enables them to sing. It sounds very tiring. Yes. I can't work out where he is. Well, does he sit at the top of the stem no, or somewhere low. in the middle? Let's try it. He's usually quite low down, especially on a windy day. Let's get closer and then we can really listen to him. Perhaps he got a bit too close there. We're about four or five metres away and he might have. Now here he goes again. Experiments with other species of warblers have shown that females prefer males with a very rich repertoire in their songs, many different notes, for example. And they seem to get an advantage by pairing up with these beautiful songsters because they are, are fitter, they're genetically superior, and they're also better parents. So by singing a rich song, the male's advertising what a good genetic sire he would be and what a wonderful parent he would be and females are then going around shopping for good parents and good genes. So instead of having to follow this guy around for weeks to see how good he is, she can just sit and listen to his song and guess what sort of partner she's going to get. But it's not too late for him. No, absolutely not. Uh, lots of female reed warblers don't arrive till the end of May, and we've got warmer weather coming up this weekend. I think there'll be a mass arrival then, and they'll soon catch up. And then the cuckoos will get going. <laughs> and then the cuckoos will get going too, exactly. And I feel sorry for poor old some reed warblers have slogged it all the way from Africa to Wick and Fen. And if they get successfully tricked, they'll spend the whole summer working hard to raise a cuckoo instead of their own brood and go back to Africa having made no genetic profit whatsoever. So ev evolutionary speaking, when, I mean, do we know when these are common cuckoos, when they started this brood parasitism? OK, so that's a good question. So we don't know for certain, no, but um, there are about 150 species of cuckoos in the world. And if you look at the behaviour of these cuckoos, they occur right across the tropics, um, then more than half of them are just normal parental species, just like the birds in our back garden. So they build their own nests and care for their own young. And it's very clear if you look at this family tree of cuckoos that the parasitic lineages are the later branches of this evolutionary tree. So they've evolved from parental ancestry. And probably in the last tens of millions of years. So the cuckoo family goes back to something like 60 million years, we think. And so cheating has evolved from parental ancestry uh, in the last tens of millions of years, yes. It's a new trick that they've learnt. It's a trick, yes. And it could be that this trickery is still evolving today. I mean, we don't know for certain. Um, there are some small birds which you think, well, why doesn't the cuckoo go for them, like chaffinches, for example. And our experiments show that they're even more eagle-eyed than reed warblers at spotting odd eggs in their nest. 
So it's quite possible that chaffinches and some other small birds have won the battle with the cuckoo and the cuckoos had to change hosts because they weren't able to keep up with host defences. Yeah, I think um, when you were talking about the different females, the different subspecies laying different coloured eggs, it crossed my mind whether this is perhaps speciation in action, perhaps. Absolutely. So if if you look at small birds which have got no history of cuckoo parasitism because they breed in little holes, for example, like tits and pied flycatchers, to which the female cuckoo could get no access, or because their diet is unsuitable for raising a baby cuckoo, they feed on seeds, for example. And it turns out our experiments show that these uh, small birds don't mind odd eggs in their nest. They quite they tolerate them. So that suggests that only once you start getting parasitized by cuckoos does egg rejection bring a benefit. And then the arms race proceeds as the hosts become more eagle-eyed and the cuckoos evolve better and better trickery. So this perfection uh, of cuckoo mimicry has evolved hand in hand as the hosts have evolved better defences. So it really is an evolutionary arms race. He's still going. He really is. So he could sing for many days till he gets a mate. And then if we come back here one morning and he'd be quiet and we can then be absolutely sure he's got a mate. And if you sit very still... You can often hear him chatting to his mate. They make little chup-chup-chup noises as if they're having a chat in the reeds. And then within a day or two of arriving, she'll build a nest. He doesn't help at all, he just follows her around. And then during egg-laying, and just prior to egg-laying, he follows the female around like a leech to protect his paternity and Mm. make sure that she doesn't mate with the guy next door. Does he help at all with the young? Does he... Sit on the eggs and feed the chicks? Yes, he does. Although the female does all the nest building, once the clutch is complete, the male and the female then do 50-50 shares of incubation and they do 50-50 shares of of chick feeding too. Yes. It's, It's quite interesting that both the male and the female will reject odd eggs from their nest. And we know that by looking at the behaviour of colour marked birds. Um... So we've seen females throw odd eggs out of the nest, and males too. But they don't always agree, which is quite interesting. So we've done some experiments with model eggs, where the female rebelled, and she decided she didn't like the look of this egg. And so she decided to dismantle the nest and build a new nest next door. And the male, in the meantime, was quite happy with this odd egg and carried on incubating. And he watched the nest being dismantled beneath him until finally he had to agree to the move. So that male and female seem to make independent decisions about whether to carry on or to reject. It was quite good. That is interesting. Isn't this a great song? It's so wonderful. A bit tired just listening to him, yes, just yes, singing and yes. singing and now, singing. Spend most of the day doing this. Overlaid with the chiff chaff. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry the cookies aren't calling for us, that's annoying. Well, we had you <laughs> doing an invitation. Which... Not as good as the real thing. Oh, it sounded very much like it to me. So that was Megan and Nick roaming the wilds of Wiccan Fen in search of cuckoos. And before we talk about the episode, I'm delighted to say that Megan has joined the regular 
team of Hannah and Jack in the podcast virtual studio. And so it's lovely to have you along, Megan. And thank you so much for heading out to the wilds of Wiccan Fen. Did you have a good time? Oh, it was amazing. Nick is just this encyclopedia of knowledge about cuckoos, obviously because he studied them for decades, has written books and many papers about them. And it was just an absolute privilege to be able to walk around with him and just ask him loads of questions that I wanted to know and that I'm sure our listeners would want to ask and get answered as well. I mean, it was brilliant. And there's so much, so much stuff I didn't know about cuckoos that Nick revealed and you teased out of him. Um, However, we are going to sack you because you didn't find any cuckoos. What's going on there? (laughs) Sent you to Cuckoo Central. Well, I did eventually find one, but it was way too distant to get a recording of it, which was really annoying. It was just on the other side of the load and then some. And there was no easy way to cross the load where I was. Right, you, would you have had to wade through the water, do you think? Bearing in mind my height, it probably would have been more like swimming. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, there's certain dedication required in this podcast, Megan. Um, it, no, it was wonderful. Um, Hannah, did you have some questions? You look, you look like you're ready with... I have observations rather than questions, yes. I thought it was... I mean, it's it's impossible to not be sort of taken in by how clever the cuckoos are with all of their trickery and deception and how hard they work to kind of get absolutely right. And then all the contingency that they have in case like they're slightly slow, they can swallow the eggs and all that kind of nonsense. But then I felt quite sorry because the reed warblers are so um, such good parents. I was saying about um, how they share the incubation 50-50 and like they make sure that they like feed to the sound that the chicks are making like they're so attentive and they're so good such a shame that they don't actually get to use this kind of nurturing instinct on their own children yeah I do end up feeling sorry for the foster parents but sometimes they do manage to spot the intruder and kick them out and I guess you've just got to hand it you've just got to hand it to the cuckoos that they've been clever enough I don't know clever is the right word in terms of evolution can you anthropomorphize them yes but we'll use that for now the fact that they've been clever enough to develop this strategy is just fascinating and you can't help but admire them for it yeah and the fact that it's like it's not learned they haven't sort of watched their parents do it and so they've sort of taught themselves to do it it's it's there it's instinctual it's sort of it's it exists by itself. It's extinct in I can't even say it. Instinctual murder. <laughs> <laughs> it's the name of my metal We're, band. <laughs> I, what's interesting, yeah, I mean that evolution um element is so at some point the cuckoo must have raised its yeah, or the ancestors of the cuckoo must have raised their own young in their nests, and then one day one accidentally slipped an egg into another <laughs> into another bird's nest. And um that became a, I don't, you know, who knows how, the, how yeah. this begins, but, oh, maybe you know, Megan. Well, he was saying that not all cuckoos are parasites. So it's just a few, he was saying that it's just some of the cuckoos that are brood parasites, not all of them. But amazing. And Hannah, did you have anything else on cuckoos? No, because all of my questions were answered and I just had observations. 
Like even the, so even when he was like talking about something and I wrote down a question like, oh, I want to find out more about this, he would just do it automatically. So he's absolutely spot on. Yeah, he's, and his passion, just his joy of hearing, particularly the, the Reed Warbler, but there were other things that he picked out where you could just tell from the tone of his voice, it wasn't a scientific dryness. It was a real passion and love for these things, which... I've, I, you know, it's very engaging to hear someone speak like that. And, you know, Megan, you speak like that a lot about the lots of the critters that you, I mean, I should say that Megan works for BBC Wildlife magazine, which is a companion to Country Farm magazine. Um, and we work together quite a lot. Insects are your, are your thing. And, and Wick and Fen presumably would be like a paradise for an insect, an entomologist. I mean, Wick and Fen is probably... No, I don't know whether this is completely true, but I think it's got the highest number of dragonfly and damselfly species recorded at it. Now, I might have made that up, but if it, if I have, it's definitely at the ver- near the very top. It is just a fantastic place, just in general, but also for insects. So a lot of people, you know, we, we focused on cuckoos in this podcast and it's something that people can easily, you know, the, the sound is so great. In fact, Nick's impression was brilliant. The sound is so great and they are infamous, charismatic creatures. But you love in, you love the insects, the small and the, and the, the sort of the, the pesky perhaps that, are what, that might be deemed pesky and, and sort of overlooked by other people. How would you try to convince people to take a closer look at, I mean, obviously butterflies and bees, but what about the other stuff? How could you get people to love them? Oh, I mean, I know we were saying earlier about the cuckoo being, you know, mean and taking over the nests of other species. You can't help but admire, admire them. Even for pests of insects, you can't help but admire them as well in certain ways, either They've got fascinating behaviours or they're beautiful. Every species in the world, really, has got something about it that's interesting. That's encouraging. Yeah. I mean, just today I found a moth in my garden which has clear wings and it's shiny. It's an iridescent metallic colour. And I was over the moon to see it. And most people will go, oh, it's just a moth. All moths are brown and boring. But actually, when you start looking a little bit closer, you realise, actually, they're all pretty cool. You celebrate your finds on Twitter. So you should tell the listeners what your Twitter handle is so, so people can keep up with your discoveries. What do you call yourself on Twitter? Well, very handily, it's just my name, Megan Shersby. No dots, no dashes. Well, I'm glad you had a brilliant time at Wiccan and I know you've recorded lots more audio for us and we're going to have a part two where you do more sort of general exploration of the reserve, which will be brilliant. So that will be published a bit later in the series and we may have you back on, Megan, but we're not going to let you go without asking you to contribute to our regulars at the end of each podcast chat. We talk about reviews and comments that we've had, but also, drum roll sound of the week and I gather you've got our sound of the week for this episode. So this one comes from Pam Wetnell from South Australia who says really enjoying the podcasts such a great range of locations and experiences. Our wildlife tends to be a bit more raucous here especially our parrots 
So here's a few seconds of sulfur-crested cockatoos and corellas on my evening walk with bonus frogs. Not exactly restful or calming, but not all of nature is. So I'm quite intrigued as to what this is going to sound like. I love a bonus frog. Wow. Wow. That was raucous. Pam, thank you for that. I think <laughs> you're <laughs> slightly shocked. Yeah, you sure that was that was nature. That was that was, yeah. I mean, that's not the familiar blackbirds and song thrushes that we <laughs> we've all been enjoying of late. But Pam's right. It's um you know, there are there are some extraordinary sounds and it's lovely to share them with it. I've got to say, I think uh Certain films and stuff like Jurassic Park, obviously where the sounds don't exist, they have to use nature and other sounds to replicate it. And that sounds very much like a Jurassic Park background. Yeah, it It's does. very just sort of, the sound's not really, you don't really know what you're listening to. If you didn't know what it was, you could, you'd probably struggle to guess because I think they, those are not usual sounds that everyone hears. It's not exactly a mindful piece of... No. <laughs> No, quite. We also have some some feedback, some reviews. So I'll go first with the reviews that we've had. We've had a four-star review, uh, which is it's really interesting. It's a good one, this. Um, so it's from Podetta on Apple Podcasts, and they say, such a wonderful transportive podcast, the perfect beginning or end to any day, dot, 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 mostly. And here oh. comes the... Uh, I don't know why they, i.e. us, leave in the gulps and mouth clicking. The mics pick up stuff you wouldn't hear even in close conversation. It's so distracting. If they could fix this, dot, 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 implying that perfection and five stars. Um, <laughs> Jack, I'm, I'm, this might be one for you as, as, the, as the sound genius. What do you think? I th- it's an absolutely fair comment. I mean, I'm... It's, I'm, I'm happy people are picking this stuff up because obviously the podcast is for all of you listening and we want it to be as enjoyable and as nice for you as possible. So getting your feedback that's only going to help improve it is is really lovely to get. I mean, we've always tried to try and keep the recordings as clean and sort of as raw as possible because we don't want this podcast to be a really overproduced, hard cut podcast. So normally we are quite kind of light-handed on the Edison, shall we say. We're definitely going to keep, I'll keep an eye on this. And um, I know you mentioned an episode that you did find was, it was a bit problematic. So we've gone through and given this another, another cleanup. Um, so you should, if you go back and listen now, problems should be sorted and you should be able to go back to enjoying the episodes. And hopefully you can feel like you can give us that extra star. Yeah. <laughs> I totally second that, Jack. I think it's, um, we've, uh, we're really honest with the sounds we record. So yes, it's we're, we're learning all the time. So Hannah, you also have a review that's been left for us. Yes, well, I have a five-star review, which has Blended. been um, 
the cause of much joy in the podcast studio. The title is Just Wonderful. And they say, thank you. I listen to these whenever I wake up before the alarm and I'm transported back to the UK. I'm so glad that there are enthusiastic nature lovers like you all out there who are able to share such wonderful knowledge and humour. Although I don't think stand-up is on the cards for Fergus anytime soon. What? what, what wait, what? <laughs> who, who was that from, Hannah? <laughs> it's from A and T, who are ex-UKers, now British Columbians. Okay, too far away to reach in Canada. Some of my favourite listeners. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's that's obviously hugely encouraging and also on a personal level slightly disappointing um, the lord <laughs> giveth and he taketh away uh, well thank you um fair enough fair enough bang to rights but there will be more jokes at some stage i will uh, and i'm not going to take that uh, i'm not going to take that comment about stand up lying down bum, bum. <laughs> <laughs> however that was bef- awful. before we well thank you um before we go I do have some pond news. So it's pond, <gasps> a pond news special. Um, pond update. So previous listeners who have stuck with the podcast, uh, you might have heard that I had some, well, I'll fill you in on what's been happening. I found some frog spawn by the side of the road. I put it in the pond and rescued it. It disappeared, having hatched beautifully, and I discovered there was a chub, which is a species of fish in my pond, and it had eaten the tadpoles. I caught the chub released it into the river. Today I went out, I thought, the pond's looking very full of pondweed. I cleared out some of the pondweed. There were two more chub <laughs> in the pond. So, um, <laughs> so I have got, and uh, I, I tried to catch them in the net. Uh, I've got a very good pond dipping net, one of the best, in fact, in the business. But it was insufficient. I, they were so fast. They were like lightning. And I couldn't, uh, I couldn't catch them. So I got in touch with our podcast friend, Kevin Parr, and he suggested uh, that I use rod and line to, catch, <laughs> <laughs> to try and catch these fish from my pond. And he said, a brace of chub on a warm summer's afternoon would be a great result for you, Fergus. So, <laughs> um, so I'm not sure whether I'm going to do that, but I, they can't stay in the pond forever because it's supposed to be a wildlife pond and they're just cleaning it out of whatever's in there. So that's pond news, pond news of the week. Uh, I will keep you informed of how things progress. My thank you. Del- yeah, so you're, you're all looking really bemused. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a feature film soon. Yes, yeah. uh, the, the, uh, right. The dawn of the chub. However, I, I do feel we should end the podcast here before um, A and T give us just three stars next time. So, um, Megan, thank you so much for coming along and joining us and for your lovely recording with Nick it was brilliant and I look forward to hearing more podcasts from me in the future and to Hannah and Jack a delight as ever thank you so much for your help it's goodbye from the podcast team <laughs> <laughs>